I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And today, what I felt like talking about was the... Honestly, guys, I think this is the single greatest Joker story that's ever been told by anybody anywhere. And <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, or at least for those of you who couldn't guess, today's story is going to be The Laughing Fish, originally published in Detective Comics number 475 and number 476. And the reason that I regard this as the single greatest Joker story that's ever been told, partly it's because, well, I mean, I really do believe it. I really do believe that this is the greatest Joker story ever told. But in my opinion, the great Joker stories, they all have certain things in common with one another, and that is a decent body count. You know, uh, the Joker needs to kill a decent number of people. You know, I'm not saying he needs to wipe out an entire city or something like that, but he needs to kill at least a couple of people, right? So there's that. There needs to be disguises. You know, the Joker needs to be able to slip in and out of places in disguise and only really be unmasked if he chooses to be unmasked or if he chooses to unmask himself. Another thing that he needs to do is demonstrate the ability to use the media to his own advantage. And he also needs, just by his presence, he needs to be able to demonstrate or at least cause a certain amount of pandemonium. You know, there needs to be a little bit of panic in the air because people are wondering just what the fuck is the Joker going to do next? You know, this stuff and other things, those to me are what define a good Joker story, you know? And in relation to that, The Laughing Fish hits every single thing that I want from a great Joker story, right? And honestly, that's really one of the reasons why you're listening to the music that you're listening to in the background here. 
is for as many problems as I have with the Dark Knight, one of the things that it does really, really well is show the Joker using the media. It shows the Joker using disguises at times. And overall, there's just this this air of pandemonium, you know, the, the pandemonium of it all, of, you know, the Joker doing this, the Joker doing that. He's just causing all kinds of mayhem everywhere he goes. And in a weird kind of way, you know, for as much as, it's not that I don't like the Dark Knight, but for as, mu for as many problems as I have with the Dark Knight, the... The way that it used the Joker, I've actually got very few problems with, you know? And another thing to think about is the music of The Dark Knight is probably the... It's, it, it may actually be the best of all of the Chris Nolan movies, you know, as far as balance. And uh, just music that really conveys the mood of the situation in most cases you know again i'm not saying that hans zimmer's scores for those movies are perfect i'd never make that argument but i do think they work for what they're supposed to do you know everything that they're supposed to be they become those things you know so that's just the way that i view it and so it in a weird kind of way i've always seen a lot in common between The Dark Knight and The Laughing Fish. Not so much in terms of, you know, plot similarities or anything like that. I don't mean like that. I mean, the the tone of it is, uh, of these two stories, the tone is actually, I think, kind of similar, you know? And again, that's part of why I'm using the music that I'm using. But the other thing is, you know, whenever you're talking about Bronze Age Batman, it's kind of hard to find a really appropriate array of music. Does that make sense? It's kind of hard to find something from existing Batman films that is at once iconic and also appropriate to the material that you're going to be talking about. And for as, for as good as the, the Danny Elfman scores are, I, I don't really think they're completely appropriate for the Bronze Age. For as operatic and a little over the top as the Elliot Goldenthal scores are, I think they're a little too shiny, happy, marching band a little bit for some Bronze Age stories. Not everything, but there are certain Bronze Age stories that, El that Elliot Goldenthal's scores, uh, his Batman scores, just aren't going to work all that well with. And so that pretty much leaves you with Hans Zimmer. I mean, yeah, I guess there's the the Junkie XL thing that that, that came out of uh, Batman v Superman, but that just seems a little too something. I don't know. Something about that just kind of I've had a hard time getting my head around that. Put it that way. So anyway, so that pretty much leaves the Hans Zimmer Chris Nolan scores, right? So here we are. That's why you're hearing the music that you're hearing. Now, as to the comics, like I say, what I'm going to be talking about is Detective Comics number 475 and number 476, but I'm not talking about those, those two comics from those original issues, right? Basically, what I've got is a reprint of The Laughing Fish, you know, these two issues, a reprint of them that was included in The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, 
And the reason I'm... The reason I'm reading these comics out of the greatest Joker stories ever told, as opposed to some other trade or perhaps the original comics, is because, honestly, the greatest Joker stories ever told, that's what I have immediate access to, so that's what I'm going with, in part. The other thing is, whenever you go back and you look at the original comics, yeah, they're good, but there's a certain uh, primitive element to them. And the greatest Joker stories ever told reprints of these comics. These are recolored and it's a higher quality print job and it's just a better presentation, you know? And you wouldn't think that recoloring these stories can really make all that big a difference, but guys, it makes a huge fucking difference. If you wanna know just how big a contribution coloring really makes to a comic book, guys, I'd recommend going out and buying these original issues, Detective Comics number 475 and 476, The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, and then also The Strange Apparitions trade paperback, and then comparing these, these specific issues to one another, because what you're going to find is that they're all colored differently from each other, and what ends up happening is it's, it's, there's a slightly different mood that, that gets evoked based in part on the coloring you know the coloring is a huge part of any comic and this is literally the best example that i can think of just because it's been recolored so many times so everyone's in, uh, everyone's welcome to pick their favorite coloring job but for me the the recoloring that was done for the greatest joker stories ever told that was done by petra scotis this to me is the way this story needs to look so maybe I'll get more into that later on. Now, just one more thing before we finally get into before we finally get into the stories is guys, what you need to understand is that the laughing fish is sort of this is the windup of what many people consider to be if not the greatest run on Batman there's ever been, one of the greatest runs on Batman that, the, that there's ever been. And this is the Steve Englehart, Mar uh, Marshall Rogers run on Detective Comics. And basically, it only lasts, I want to say like six issues. But Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers, you know, in, in a weird kind of way, it's, it's, it's kind of funny that they work as well together as they do because there really isn't a collaboration going on here. To my understanding, the way that it worked is Steve Englehart basically wrote all of his comics and then uh, all of his issues and then uh, turned them into DC Comics. And when all was said and done, they ended up handing them over to Marshall Rogers. But it's this is not a uh, this is not comparable to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons on Watchmen, where they really did collaborate with each other. Basically, Englehart did his work in a vacuum and independent of Marshall Rogers. And then Marshall Rogers did his work independently and in a vacuum from Steve Englehart. So on the one hand, they recognize that their two styles and approach to the materials that they worked very well together. But I don't think they ever once claimed that this was a collaboration in the usual sense of the word. So it's kind of weird that sometimes you can get amazing results whenever there's not a bona fide collaboration, you know, between 
writer and artist. You know, sometimes, well, sometimes they do very well whenever they work independently from one another. And I've always just found that kind of fascinating. So there's really no deeper meaning to that. I just wanted to mention all of that. Now, as to the other, uh, the other issues, the other issues in the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers run, I don't know when. I'm probably going to talk about those issues at some point. I just don't know when that's going to happen. So I guess keep an ear out for that. But for some reason, I just really felt like talking about the laughing fish today. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. So anyway, to start off part one, or for those of you following along in the original comics, this is Detective Comics number 475. Or for those of you who are following along in The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, this is page 226. Or for those of you who are following along in The Strange Apparitions trade, you're on your own because I don't have access to that trade. The story starts off with what I think is actually some some kind of amazing narration. It says, Thunderheads are massing on the western horizon, but the storm refuses to break. It lowers out there, muttering filling the ozone with subtle electrical charge. In the city, strap hangers snarl and bus drivers bark. Knives glint in bar rooms and savage screams mingle with the midtown tumult unheard. And to me, I mean, that's just such a crimey, pulpy, noiry type of way of opening the story. And it kind of gives you a little bit of a taste of what you're in for. Like, if you hadn't read anything else in the Marshall Rogers run, or sorry, the Steve Englehart run, or Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers run on Detective Comics, if you'd read nothing else, this is a pretty good sort of way to prime yourself for what's going to come, you know, what the ensuing stories are going to be. That's just really pulpy and expressive writing. Does that make sense? So, anyway. But to actually start this off properly, credits are as follows. Executive editor is Joe Orlando. Cover artist, for those of you reading the original comics, cover artists are Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. Writer is Steve Englehart. Penciler is Marshall Rogers, inker is Terry Austin, letterer is Ben Oda, and editor is Julius Schwartz. Summary is as follows. It's nighttime in Gotham City. Batman swings across the rooftops until he comes to the apartment window of Silver St. Cloud. After being invited inside, Batman inquires whether or not Miss Cloud had anything to, uh, to speak to him about, and this relates to Goings on from Detective Comics number 474, which was reprinted in the greatest Batman stories ever told, the Deadshot Ricochet. Basically, Silver, when Batman was having it out with Deadshot, Silver called out to Batman, and they didn't talk to each other, but Batman stopped what he was doing and they held eye contact for a while, and then Batman had to get the hell out of Dodge because the police were about to show up. So, that's the backstory. After being invited inside, Batman inquires whether or not Miss Cloud had anything to speak to him about. The look she'd given him the previous evening expressed something akin to recognition. 
Silver stares back at him and immediately recognizes the Batman as her boyfriend, Bruce Wayne. Batman, in turn, suspects that Silver may know the truth. An uncomfortable moment passes between the two, and Batman then excuses uh, himself. Moments later, he telephones Silver as Bruce Wayne, asking her to postpone their next date. Silver cancels the date altogether. Later, Batman continues patrolling the city and eventually swoops down toward the Gotham City docks. A fisherman approaches him and shows him barrels of freshly caught fish. Ordinarily, this mundane incident would not rouse the Batman's attention, but there is the matter of all of the fish having faces that look very similar to that of the Joker. The fisherman asks Batman why someone would want to create fish with Joker faces, but Batman discourages the inquiry, saying, The Joker's mind is clouded in madness. His motives make sense to him alone. The following morning, the Joker and his henchmen barge into the office of the City Copyright Commission. The Joker introduces himself to a clerk named G. Carl Francis indicating that he wishes to trademark his designer Jokerfish. The man is clearly terrified by the Joker's presence, but tells him that nobody can register a copyright on a natural resource, even one as mutated as the macabre Jokerfish. The Joker scoffs at Francis and tells him that he has until midnight to make his desires a reality, or else he'll be, and I quote, the poorest fish of all, and dead as a mackerel. The Joker leaves the office to confer with his underlings. As he's wont to do, he arbitrarily pushes one of his henchmen out into oncoming traffic where he gets run over by a truck and killed. The Joker claims another victim. Meanwhile, at the tobacconist club, Rupert Thorne grows extremely nervous. His aide, Marco, comes to greet him, but his presence only serves to agitate Thorne even further. Thorne excuses himself to the bathroom to wash his face when suddenly he gets accosted by the Joker. The Joker knows that, the, that Thorne was involved with the mysterious death of Hugo Strange a few issues back and wonders if Strange may have told Thorne the true identity of the Batman. So far as the Joker is concerned, his greatest adversary has no identity other than being the Batman. However, he is satisfied that Thorne knows nothing and so leaves him be. Frightened, Rupert scrambles out of the building, hops into a sedan, and drives off. Elsewhere, later that evening, G. Carl Francis goes to Commissioner Gordon to tell him about the threat made against his life. Gordon and Batman bring Francis back to his home, where Batman inspects it for traps or hidden weapons. The Joker broadcasts a message across television waves, <clears throat> declaring that he's going to kill Francis at the stroke of midnight. The three men maintain their vigil well into the evening, but at the stroke of midnight, Francis's study begins to fill with noxi noxious gas. Batman quickly slides a rebreather into Francis's mouth, but it does no good. As the smoke clears, G. Carl Francis is dead, a grotesque smile etched across his face. The calling card of the Joker. Batman deduces that the gas that filled the room was one part of a binary compound, otherwise harmless unless mixed with another agent. He determines that the Joker must have sprayed Fran Francis with a secondary agent when he visited his office earlier that day. Elsewhere, 
Rupert Thorne continues getting the hell out of Dodge and escaping in his car in the dark, rainy weather when he picks up a hitchhiker. Silver St. Cloud. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, we've talked a little bit about the writing, and God knows we're going to talk more about it in just a second, but, you know, for right now, this is some amazing artwork. Marshall Rogers started off, apparently, as an architect, and so he puts a special emphasis on design, architecture, perspective, and making sure that all of his draftsmanship is perfect on a technical level. So he kind of portrays Gotham City as being a little bit of this weird, fucked up, claustrophobic type of environment. It's almost like the city, and it's it's a little bit of a cliche when people say it now, but it's kind of true. When Marshall Rogers is drawing Batman, Gotham City is sort of a character unto itself. And... Honestly, it's it's inescapable on literally page one of this story where you see all these lightning uh, bolts that are flashing through the sky. You've got these deep, dark, misty-looking clouds and these skyscrapers. Are, they're, uh, it's almost like they're imposing upon everything else and in their, their own weird kind of way, it's like they're oppressing everything and everyone. And... It's it's really powerful, you know? And these are... I guess from a design perspective, these are just fairly nondescript-looking buildings. You know, this isn't like that, that sort of neo-Gothic or lightly communist-looking buildings of the, of the Tim Burton movies. It just... This is just something different. It looks at once more realistic on the one hand, but it's... At the same time, it's also a little bit more imposing, you know? So, because so much of the page is filled up with buildings and background detail, and, and it's, it's like it's, the city is swallowing itself in a weird kind of way. So, I just really like that. It's, it's a very powerful, very effective, very atmospheric type of page. But another kind of clever aspect of this is the purpose of this story is foreshadowed you know, this whole Joker fish thing is foreshadowed right here on page one. Because if you look carefully, you'll see a sign that has a fish with a smiley face on it right above the Laughing Fish logo. And it's just a neat little reminder of where this story is going to go. You know, it doesn't really call a whole lot of attention to itself. But if you see it, you see it. And if you if you can puzzle out what it means... Well, like I say, it doesn't take anything away from the story if you miss it, but it kind of adds a little something-something to it if you catch it. So, I don't know. It's pretty neat, and I guess that's the point. So, anyway, like I say, Marshall Rogers is a draftsman, and so it's just, you know, every single page of this... You know, people talk all kinds of shit about, you know, Neil Adams as Batman artist par excellence and nobody did it better than him and fucking blah, blah, blah. But I don't think I really, like, totally agree with that. You know, the as talented 
as Neil Adams is, and he is talented, I just prefer Marshall Rogers. For some reason, he gets the job done better, in my opinion, than does than does Neil Adams, you know? So I suppose everyone's entitled to, the, to their own opinion, but, you know, when you look at page two of this story, or page 227 in The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, you know, at the very top of the page, again, you see Batman looking across this vast expanse of the city, and he throws his, his bat rope and possibly far. I mean, there's probably no way a human being could throw a rope this far, but he does anyway because fucking he's Batman. And again, it's you just get an idea of how vast and expansive the city really is. And again, you know, Neil Adams is extremely talented. He does the job like nobody's business. I just prefer Marshall Rogers. And panels like this are why. I mean, it's this ultra widescreen, ultra expansive, just very atmospheric panel. And I just really dig it. So then in panel two, you know, Batman swings onto Silver St. Cloud's terrace. And in the background, this is sort of a... Marshall Rogers hat trick, I guess. He has another little in-universe sort of joke. A billboard says, read the story by Steve Englehart. You know, and again, if you're just reading this and you miss that, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't contribute anything, so you're not missing anything. But if you catch it, it's just a fun little joke, I guess. So the other thing is, and this is on page, let's see, this is one, two. I'm going to count this little text bit here as its own panel. So, pay, so let's see, one, two, three, four. So pay, uh, panel six. Batman lets himself into Silver's apartment. And you can see that he's practically swallowed up by his cape. And it's like he doesn't want to give, at least to start with, he doesn't want to give Silver too good a look at his face for fear that she might recognize him. And nobody drew Batman's cape, not even Neil Adams. Nobody drew Batman's cape quite like Marshall Rogers. It's almost like the cape is alive and an extension of Batman's body. And he can use it to, to just envelop himself in his own cape. And it's this extra layer of disguise, you know, and I just, I like that. It's powerful. It works for me. So you get into page three or page 228 and basically what you have here is a lot of subtextual communication that's going on between batman and silver they're both thinking this the same thing but neither of them can bring themselves to speak the truth to say what they both already know that silver knows uh, batman's true identity neither of them can really bring themselves to say it and so they're both talking around it. But they both know. And this has got, I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I would imagine that this has got to be a pain in the ass to, to draw because what the characters are saying is almost the total opposite from what they're thinking and what they're doing, you know? And this is one of those weird aspects of human communication that, it's really hard to fake or it's really hard to explain or it's really hard to act out, you know, like in a movie or something like that. But we've all done it, but there's, it's hard to put into words, but it's that moment when, 
what you're saying is the total opposite of, let me rephrase that. What you're saying out loud is the total opposite of what you mean. Does that make sense? It's when the subtext is the, the true intent of what you're saying. It's in your eyes or it's in your body language. It's in your, your overall demeanor or maybe even just your tone of voice, you know? That's what's really happening on this page. And it's got to be a pain in the balls to write. And it's really got to be a pain in the balls to, to draw. So anyway, really well done. That's the point. It's really well done. So anyway, Batman excuses himself, breaks the date, you know, calls Silver from a payphone because this was the 70s. Calls Silver from a payphone and breaks the date, swings through the city, and basically has a lot of internal monologue. And this is one of those times, guys, when, you know, sometimes thought balloons really are the way to go, you know? Because of the fact that you can only have so many thought balloons on a page, it forces the writer basically to be more efficient, Whereas if you can have captioned internal monologues, the writer feels, I don't know why, but for some reason the writer just feels at liberty to just ride and write and write and write and write. And you know, Frank Miller had a really powerful internal monologue, but my God, that man just never knew when to shut the fuck up, you know? And so what you're left with here is Steve Englehart has no choice but to use a... He's got no choice but to use uh, thought balloons because the captions are sort of third-person narration. And so he can't caption Batman's internal monologue. So he has to put him in thought balloons. And that forces Englehart to be more efficient in terms of, you know, what Batman is and is not saying. He can't just go on for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. He's got to kind of get to the point in just two or three sentences, and then that's it. So that's the bright side. The dark side to all of that is that there's still a fair number of thought balloons on the page, and what that ends up doing is actually blocking out some of the art. So it's, I don't know, it's it's a trade-off, and it's one I'm willing to make, but I freely admit that, you know, it does come at the detriment of the art and basically what it could have been, you know? So one of the things, though, speaking of the art, one of the things that I like here, and this is on page 230, one of the things that I, or page five in the comics, is one of the things that I like is Englehart would do sort of unique things with uh, layouts and panel transitions and all of that sort of stuff. And so here at the top of the page, the scallops of Batman's cape Basically, Marshall Rogers uses that to create a sort of negative space on the page and give this top panel here sort of an odd sort of dome shaped uh, to it. There are several dome shapes at the top of the page. And what you realize is those aren't actually dome shapes. Those are the scallops of, of Batman's cape. But the negative space allows Rogers to sort of just draw it as dome shapes. And that's part of like the panel transition 
from Silver's apartment to on uh, page four in the comic or page 229 in The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told. So that's where we left off there, Silver's apartment. And then when you flip over to page five or uh, in the comic or page 230 in uh, The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, the scallops of Batman's cape are basically used as negative space to create a transition effect from Silver's apartment to Batman swinging uh, across the city and all of that fun stuff. And again, not very many artists, in fact, possibly no other artist ever did that, you know, Rogers is pretty much in a class all by himself when it comes to that. And again, it just speaks to the unique visual identity that these comics have as compared to everything else. But another kind of neat moment is on page four, Silver decided to herself that, you know what, she's got to get the hell out of Dodge. She has to leave Gotham City. And then on page five, we see basically one picture of Silver, she's walking through her parking garage, and what we can infer is that she's come down the stairs of her apartment, she's walked through the parking garage, she's gotten into her car, she's driven off, etc., etc., right? That one panel shows us that, that Silver is acting upon that urge she had to get the hell out of Dodge, right? To leave Gotham City, right? And we don't need an entire page of Silver you know, deciding to leave and then getting dressed and then walking through our apartment building or packing or doing anything like that. We just see this one panel of Silver carrying her bags and shit to her car. And then that's it. You know, we can infer everything else. And that's just a really effective and very economical way of telling the story, you know, from a technical standpoint. But then from an artistic standpoint, you know, I just dig the coloring on this page because it's got all of these kind of secondary colors on the page. You know, uh, the the deep background is purple. The immediate background, the the basically, I guess, the mid-ground, that's more of a soft greenish-yellowish color. And then silver herself is this soft, pale blue. And so this is definitely nighttime, and it's definitely atmospheric, and it's... God, this is just a good panel. I dig this panel you know this to me is everything that comics can be because you can never really do a movie like this but you can do a comic panel like this no problem you know i just fucking dig it this is awesome so anyway so you get this kind of humorous moment you know on page six or page 231 depending on how you look at it where batman basically has a fairly casual conversation with a fisherman who shows him this huge basket full of fish and I don't know why but it's just it's kind of amusing to me to think that Batman would have such uh, casual conversations with the citizens of Gotham City when you know let's face it he's supposed to be this grim avenger of the night and here he is just having a sort of casual conversation so I don't know why that's just kind of kind of funny to me but what makes this scene work is the fact that Batman has been publicly vilified by Rupert Thorne in one sense. But in another sense, the citizens of Gotham City, they don't seem to completely buy that. You know, it's like they know, they have Batman's number, 
for real. And they know he's not what Rupert Thorne has made him out to be. And you, what you kind of infer as the story goes along, not to get too far ahead of myself, but what you kind of infer as the story goes along is that Batman is well regarded by, by you know, we the people. They know what he's really doing, what he's really up to. And even though the police make a show of chasing down Batman, they know it too. You know, they know that Batman isn't what Thorne has made him out to be. And so, in, on the one hand, they may pretend to be after him and, you know, want to arrest him. And a few of them may even really feel that way. But by and large, the popular sentiment among both people and the police is that Batman's one of the good guys. And that's driven home on this page and also in other parts of the story as well. So, and another sort of joke in the background is right here on page six or page 231, depending on what you're reading, is, let's see, this is on page one, two, three, four, uh, uh, panel four. I think I said page four a minute ago. Panel four on page 231 or page six. It's, it says in the background, there's a sign that says, see the inkology of Terry Austin. And again, <laughs> I just, I dig that. That is, uh, there's just so much of that, you know, throughout this story. And it's, it's just, it's really cool. I like it. Now, excuse me while I have a drag off of my e-cig here. I'm also going to get a drink off of my Coke because I've been running my mouth now for something like 30 whole minutes nonstop. So I think I've earned a drink, don't you think? Yeah. All right, good stuff. All right, so elsewhere, it's morning in Gotham City, and Gotham City is waking up. Uh, people are going to work. People are picking up newspapers outside their buildings. They're listening to radios. They're cooking breakfast. They're doing all that fun stuff. And then later in the afternoon, the Joker pays a visit to the office of G. Carl Francis, and this is on page 232 or page seven, again, depending on which of those you're reading. You see in the background, on the very bottom uh, panel, the panel at the very bottom of the page, there's this sign on the wall, and you guys may know where this is going, but there's a sign on the wall that says, Copyright Form, I think it says BF17A3. Uh, step one, make sure all, uh, car, uh, all six carbon... Sh all six carbon sheets are straight. Step two, fill out all pertinent data. Step three, submit to supervisor. Step four, peruse the pencilography of Marshall Rogers. I just fucking love that. There are so many little background gags that, again, if you're watching for him, it doesn't contribute anything, 
But it does give you a little something extra to enjoy in this story if you can find this stuff, you know? So, anyway. So the Joker's goons invade the office. And there's... That's on page uh, 7 or page 232. Then on page 8 or page 233, just depending. Uh, the very first panel, there's this kind of glory shot of the Joker. Uh, he's wandering into the... He, he wanders into the office and it's this sort of grand entrance because above all, the Joker's a showman and so he would want his presence to be announced. So when, the, when his henchman says, button it, lady, no noise from nobody. Hands behind your heads, you've got a visitor. And the Joker comes in just laughing his head off. He wants the attention to be called on himself. You know, he wants the spotlight, you know, and this is just very good, very insightful writing. You know, that the Joker is a showman. He wants all of the attention on him. And indeed, here it is. So it works. It's just a, a, a dramatic little moment. And this is just a ridiculously well-drawn panel. This first one on page eight or page 233, the Joker comes in, he takes off his hat, a Joker card kind of flutters to the ground and he's just laughing. And he's got a sort of iconic Joker outfit on. He's got this long purple uh, trench coat. And then a fairly traditional Joker three-piece suit, but the part of the suit, the three-piece suit that's usually purple is blue because his trench coat is purple and the idea is to create contrast. And so blue is a good contrast against purple. And so that's why he's wearing it. So his his outfit is actually uh, several different colors. His, his, uh, his main shirt is green. He's got one of those sort of bolo looking ties uh, that he's wearing. That looks to be colored black. His little vest is colored gold. His pants and his, I don't know, his sort of uh, jacket, it, those things are blue. And then his trench coat is purple and his hat is purple. And this is just a fucking cool look for the Joker. If he was to adopt this look full time, which will never happen, but if he was to adopt this look full time, I'd be okay with that because this is just a fucking badass look for the Joker. Because in a weird kind of way, it gives him a cape, but not really, you know? So anyway, uh, I like that. That works for me. So anyway, from there, the Joker basically makes his demands to G. Carl Francis. Look, I want you to trademark this shit so that way I can get rich. And one of the things that's kind of up for grabs in this story is how serious is the Joker really about this? You know, does he really care about the laughing fish uh, or, or the, I guess the Joker fish? Maybe that's the best way to put it. Is he really serious about trademarking the the Joker fish? Or is this just an excuse to kill people, you know? And honestly, I mean, the, the jury is still out on that by the time this story wraps up. Because ultimately, these fish, no matter what the Joker really thinks of them, they're really just a MacGuffin. They're here to propel the story and give the Joker an objective and also serve as a little bit of a visual calling card for him, but they're not really important unto themselves. They just basically drive the events of the narrative. And so in relation to that, there's a sense in which it doesn't really matter what the Joker really wants. 
because they serve their purpose. But I mean, on a strictly internal, uh, in-universe character level, does the Joker really want to trademark these fish? Does he really even care? Or is this just an excuse for him to kill people, you know? And like I say, I don't think the story definitively answers that either way. So you're welcome to form whatever uh, conclusion you want. I happen to think that the Joker saw this as an excuse. He wants to kill people. This will allow him to do so. And that is where the value of these fish begins and ends, you know? That's it. So, anyway, moving right along, he threatens uh, G. Carl Francis. And as he does so, I mean, again, you get some very keen insight into who the Joker is as a character. There's plenty more to come, but you get a, a, a neat little insight right here. So, the Joker says, I might as well tell you, Francis, this has all been worked out far in advance. You are finally just a cog so don't speak to me again now what is everybody in the country talking about and francis uh says uh your fish and so the joker backhands francis right across the face and says i told you not to talk i don't need you to answer my questions i can answer my questions myself I always answer my questions myself. Now, yeah, what the Joker is doing here is basically giving Francis the first part of his Joker compound. But he's also, I think, telling Francis the truth, at least as he sees it. He does ask questions of himself, and then he answers those questions on his own. That's who the Joker is. That's what he does. He really is this fucking demented, you know? I mean... Yeah, the Joker is, is criminally insane. He's a murderous lunatic. There's no question about that. But just on a personal level, the guy's just fucking unhinged, you know? He probably does sit there having conversations with himself. I, I could picture that, you know? At least as Steve Englehart writes it, I could totally picture the Joker having a conversation that way, you know? So it's just, it, it, it's good writing, you know? So anyway... After that, the Joker and his thugs, basically they take their leave of G. Carl Francis and that whole copyright building. They make their way back down to the street. And the Joker, for no real reason, just kills one of his thugs. You know, and it kind of makes you think, you know, this is something that the other, the other thugs have been kind of trained to do when the Joker just randomly kills one of them. Just for their own self-preservation, they'll pretend to laugh because the Joker, like I say, is a showman. He's always got to be putting on a show for, for somebody. And to him, this really is funny, you know? To his henchmen, who, who let's face it, they don't know when their time is going to come. You know, when are they going to be the ones that get uh, thrown in front of a truck or, or shot uh, to death just for the Joker's amusement or what? They don't know when their time is going to come, but you can kind of figure that if they don't laugh... It'll, you know, it'll be their ass on the line, too. And why are they even in his gang in the first place? The way I look at it is the Joker's reputation among the criminal underworld is that if he doesn't kill you, he'll make you a millionaire. A millionaire, you know? 
And so if you can survive, you know, one of the Joker's crime sprees, you're going to come out the other side a very rich man, you know? And I think that there's a, a class of, of criminal out there who maybe wouldn't mind playing for those kinds of odds, you know? Yeah, look, I may die or I could get insanely rich. How is that different from any other day, you know? And if you think about it, I guess from the standpoint of, you know, the criminal mind, it's actually completely fucking logical that somebody uh, would go to work for the Joker, somebody who's already a career criminal. This is, he's not, it's not as big a risk as it seems because they, know, they don't know when their number's coming up no matter what. It doesn't matter who they work for. So it's not hard to think that the Joker probably doesn't have a very, it's probably very easy for him to find henchmen and underlings and thugs and all that stuff. You know, so anyway, getting into goings on on page 12 or page 237, the Joker, uh, he has it out with uh, Rupert Thorne in the bathroom. And basically this sort of relates to goings on in previous issues. It's some continuity administrivia where Hugo Strange attempted to sell Batman's secret identity to the criminal underworld. And then he ended up dying before he could do it. And the Joker was one of the people who was invited to bid on Batman's secret identity. And it was generally known that Rupert, or at least it was known to the Joker, that Thorne was one of the people who was also invited to bid. And the Joker basically lays out his ambition, at least as far as uh, the Batman's concerned. Basically what he says is, Heed my words, fat man. I know you bid for the, for the Batman's identity alongside the Penguin and myself. I suspect you're behind Professor Strange's disappearance, but obviously you didn't learn the Batman's identity, and that's why you yet live. I don't want that secret penetrated. Ever. Since it would take away from my fun. The thrill of the joust with my perfect opponent. And Thorne is kind of shitting himself at this point. He's thinking, wait, hold, what? You're protecting him? And the Joker's answer to that is, the Joker must have the Batman. Nay, the Joker deserves the Batman. What fun would there be in humbling mere policemen? I am the greatest criminal ever known, and for anyone else to destroy the Batman would be unworthy of me. And so, this is a very valid, very plausible reason why the Joker wouldn't not only would not chase down Batman's secret identity for himself, but he might actually kill somebody if they discovered who uh, Batman truly is. Because when you come right down to it, as far as the Joker's concerned, it doesn't really matter who the Batman's secret identity is. That is so completely beside the point. The point is that the Batman is the Batman. That's what matters. And for someone else to discover the Batman's secret identity, that could very easily spell the end of all of the Joker's fun, and that can't be allowed. So the Joker would actually fight harder and maybe use more deadly methods to protect the Batman's secret identity than Batman himself would. That's fucked up. But it's... Look, I cannot believe that the Penguin 
would ever say that. I can't believe that Rupert Thorne would ever say that. I can totally fucking buy that the Joker would say that. He really does feel that way. You know? So, anyway. This little encounter with the Joker pretty much uh, sends Thorne off the deep end. He runs out of the bathroom laughing because of he's just fucking scared out of his mind. At this point, I think it's safe to say that the stress is getting to him. I mean, number one, the Joker has probably killed tens of thousands of people at this point. Number two, Thorne has been haunted by the ghost of Hugo Strange. And number three, all of this is just weighing on Thorne's already fragile psyche. So he basically breaks down for just a second, runs out of the bathroom, laughing his head off, kicks his valet out of his car, and basically drives off in his own limo, and heads way the hell out of town. Which, I don't know why, but there's something about, like, there's a lot to be said for a villain getting his comeuppance from the Batman, or from the cops, or from whoever, but... I kind of like the idea of a villain getting his comeuppance from another villain or from his own conscience or just whatever else, you know? I like that. That not necessarily every single one of your villains can fall on his own sword. Not every single one of your villains can be apprehended in a fiery shootout with Batman. Sometimes it's kind of neat to have a villain that one day just fucking snaps and because of his own guilty conscience, you know? I don't know why that fucking works for me. So, anyway. Elsewhere, uh, Batman basically... Uh, Batman and Gordon meet up with G. Carl Francis at the home of G. Carl Francis. And basically, right at the moment that they're apprising one another on what's going on, with the Joker, you know, the things that Batman has found and the things that Gordon has found. The Joker basically hijacks the television airwaves to announce to all and sundry that he's going to kill Francis at the stroke of midnight. And he even signs off by saying, the Joker has spoken. And that, I don't know. I just, I like the idea of the Joker being able to hijack the airwaves at will, you know, that plays for me. It kind of sells the Joker, not as a necessary, not necessarily like an omnipotent threat, but an omnipresent threat. You cannot get away from the Joker. You know, he's always there. And even when he's not physically there, his presence is weighing down on everybody. And again, I mean, I'm not trying to draw too many straight lines between the laughing fish as a story and The Dark Knight as a movie. But one of the things that The Dark Knight does really well is it basically sets up the Joker as the sort of malevolent force of nature that even if he's not on screen, his presence is being felt on some level or another. You know? And the Joker is kind of unique in Batman's rogues gallery that way, that the threat of Bane isn't necessarily everywhere inescapable, you know, or the threat of the penguin or Deadshot or fucking or whoever, you know, those, those villains, they're not necessarily everywhere. They're not necessarily omnipresent. They're not necessarily as 
influential and they're not they're just not capable of stirring up the same type of pandemonium the same type of way that the joker can you know the joker really is in a class all by himself as far as batman villains and this is why not just anybody can do what the joker does you know and i really dig that and that that was one of the more in my opinion effective moments of the dark knight where you would see the joker on tv or or doing this, doing that, doing the other, you know? And he was basically tearing the city up, with, really without doing all that much when you really think about it. So anyway, I just, I dig it. Now, one of these, one of the things about this story that you just kind of have to accept, you know, no matter how kind of unbelievable it is, is that the police and Batman would stake out G. Carl Francis's home, you know? That they wouldn't take him someplace safe that they could more easily secure, you know, and whatever. It has to be that way or else fucking there's no story, right? So I go with it. But it's in terms of, of what you think the like actual police procedures probably would be. No, I, I just I don't buy that they would stay at G. Carl Francis's home considering how little control they have over that environment. As I say, you kind of have to accept that they're doing it this way or else there's no story. So that's pretty much that. I just, I can't let it slide without mentioning that. So elsewhere, or actually next, I should say, not elsewhere, but next, on page 240 and page 15, the gas attack happens. Batman puts the gas mask on G. Carl Francis, but it's too little too late. Francis collapses. He falls over dead. And then his... His uh, face shifts into that uh, Joker grin. And this is just, I think, a really chilling image. I've always thought that the Joker smile on a dead body is just fucking scary. You know, it's just a really twisted looking image. And it's the kind of thing that I, I think the Joker would really get off on. You know, he would find it funny that somebody, number one, dies. But number two, they die with a smile on their face. Because those two things are so incongruent with one another the joker i think would he would appreciate the kind of dark humor of combining a smile with death and that just works for me on on some kind of weird primal level that's that's an easy thing for me to believe in and that's one of the honestly that's one of the things about the dark knight that actually sort of bothered me since i'm making all these comparisons to the dark knight that's one of the things about the Dark Knight that kind of bothered me was the Joker didn't have some type of uh, nerve gas or poison toxin or something like that that would that would do this to somebody, you know, that would make them laugh themselves to death or basically just fall over dead with a smile on their face. Nothing like that really happens. And one can surmise that Chris Nolan doesn't find that especially realistic. But, you know, guys, we live in a day and age of some really fucked up germ warfare. It, at least to me, it's not that big a stretch of the imagination to think that some type of nerve gas like that could possibly exist that would have the effect of causing you to fall, not only kill you, because that's easy to believe in, but also have... A specific uh, effect on at least some of your muscles in your body 
that would that would result in you making a, a, a smile as you fall over dead. You know? I just find that very easy to believe, you know? So, anyway. <sighs> Whatever. It's not worth making a big deal out of, I guess. But, anyway, so... The story ends with... The... With... Silver St. Cloud outside of uh, Gotham City Limits. Her car is broken down. And she ends up getting picked up by Rupert Thorne. She hitches a ride with with uh, Rupert Thorne. And that's a kind of interesting way to put the two of them together. You know, because at least for the time being, they the, the plot needs them to be together. And then it needs them to be separated. So, whatever. But... In a weird kind of way, I mean, this is, the story just kind of ends here, you know? I mean, or at least this chapter of the story just kind of ends, and there's no real cliffhanger to it or anything like that. I mean, yeah, Rupert Thorne is definitely a villain. No two ways about that. But he's not necessarily a lethal threat to Silver St. Cloud. Does that make sense? So, I don't know. Anyway, so this is just the the weird the uh, story just kind of ends on this sort of weird note where it just kind of ends. There's no cliffhanger or preview of coming attractions or anything like that. It's just boom ends. And you know, even if you read like the original comic, there's no to be continued or come back for the next issue in 30 days. It's a date or anything like that. It just fucking ends that's the end of it now there is a sort of ominous note you know this is the closest you get to some kind of a tease or a conclusion or a cliffhanger or anything like that the closest you get to that is the uh the narration caption it says the car rolls away and quickly disappears in the dark high overhead a blast of thunder marks its passage with a shriek and a shiver the storm begins and this this chapter of the story ends. So it's just kind of weird. It's fucked up. So I don't know. Overall, I fucking love this issue. This is, I love this whole story, to be honest with you. But this issue is just, it's fucking astounding. I dig it. It's tons of fun. And with that, we're going to go straight into the next issue which is Detective Comics number 476, for those following along in your comics, uh, you know, the original comics. Title is Sign of the Joker. Executive editor is Joe Orlando. Cover artists are Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. Writer is Steve Englehart. Penciler is Marshall Rogers. Inker is Terry Austin. Letterer is Milton Snappen. Editor is Julius Schwartz. Story summary... Is as follows. Batman and Commissioner Gordon know that the Joker will target an, another city bureaucrat in his mad effort to copyright his chemically altered Jokerfish. As per another televised threat, his next target is a man named Thomas Jackson. As before, Batman, Gordon, and a squad of officers hole up inside of Jackson's mansion. Batman has Jackson don one of his Batman uniforms while he, while he disguises himself as Jackson. That way... If the Joker chooses to attack him, he will actually be attacking Batman. As luck would have it, Jackson's cat, Ernest, wanders into the study, carrying a poisoned Joker fish inside his mouth. 
the venom has now infected the cat and he's gone insane uh, or rather he's got the insane joker smile now and in fact the cat is insane himself Batman dives after the animal, but the cat launches itself at Jackson, who's still wearing the Batman uniform, and bites him across the face. The venom spreads into Jackson's bloodstream, and he dies moments later. The television comes on, and the Joker takes credit for murdering Thomas Jackson. Batman leaves to track down the transmitting station that the Joker is broadcasting from. As he bounds through the nearby forest, he spies a spectral image, seemingly the ghost of his old foe, Hugo Strange. The image disappears, but Batman discovers a vapor analysis meter in the underbrush. At his ha hacienda, the Joker delights in his latest murder. He ponders to himself the fun to be had by mass-marketing his Joker fish. He even considers using his special chemicals to infect cattle. Joker burgers! Outrageous, he cries to himself. Meanwhile, Rupert Thorne's picked up a hitchhiking Silver St. Cloud. He barely remembers her from a previous exchange and pays little attention to her now. His mind is totally on Hugo Strange. Turning on the radio, Rupert and Silver learn about the most recent uh, debacle in involving the Joker as well as Batman's approach to the crimes. Rupert has no interest in hearing about Batman and angrily shuts the radio off. Silver expresses her, her support for Batman, so Thorne promptly loses his shit over it and kicks her out of his car. Moments later, the ghost of Hugo Strange attacks him. Two hours later, Batman and Commissioner Gordon meet back at police headquarters. They discuss uh, strategies, but quickly discover that the Joker is impersonating one of the guards. The Joker tries spraying Batman with acid from a false police badge. Batman dodges the attack, and the Joker escapes through a window. Batman follows him up the fire escape, and the two of them fight their way up the side of the building as rain and lightning begin pouring down on top of him. The Joker leaps from the fire escape to a nearby construction scaffold, and Batman follows after him. Unwilling to be taken alive, the Joker squirts acid on the rope, holding a suspended girder in the air, and seemingly uh, plunges to his doom. However, Batman doesn't trust that this is the last he's seen of the Joker. Meanwhile, as all of this has been going on, Silver St. Clouds returned to Gotham and watched Batman duke it out with the Joker. Confronting him, she realizes that she cannot involve herself with someone who lives such a dangerous life, so Silver breaks up with him. As Silver leaves, Commissioner Gordon approaches Batman and tells him that the local cops have picked up Rupert Thorne. Thorne's now confessing to all of his various crimes. Gordon tells Batman that he's been cleared of all suspicion for crimes that Thorne has framed him for. However, Batman pays little attention to Gordon. His mind is only on the woman who's just walked out of his life. The end. So, what did I think? Well, this is really the perfect conclusion to The Laughing Fish as a story. Now, in a lot of cases, it's easier to introduce a story than it is to conclude it. I don't know why, but... Finales are just hard to do. They are so fucking hard to do. And I think the reason for that is because on some level, what we want to see as an audience is the villain get his final comeuppance. And that usually takes the form of dying in some, in some way or another. And let's face it, you can't really kill the Joker off, so the best you can do 
is send them off to a sort of ambiguous death. While we're all pretty secure in the knowledge he's going to come back at some point or another. But if you want this to be the death of the Joker, it is. And in that kind of a way, Steve Englehart's hands are kind of tied here. But he does this, this sort of hat trick, I think, better than anybody. So anyway, basically what we've got here is Batman and the cops attempting to secure Thomas Jackson, but it doesn't work. Basically, Jackson dies after an attack from his poisoned cat, who I think we can surmise as well, uh, has died as well, but uh, honestly, who knows? So... It was, I must say, this actually took a moment for me to really, it took some study, actually, when I was a kid reading this story for the first time, because I was like probably nine or ten years old, and it took me a minute to realize, you know, Batman disguised himself as Jackson because what they were expecting was the Joker to attack personally, and he might mistake Batman for Jackson, and Batman would therefore be better able to defend himself against the Joker than Jackson himself would. And it took a minute for me to understand that that's what had happened. And the reason for that is because there's a little bit of a coloring error where Batman peels the the Batman mask off of Jackson and his hair is shown to be blonde. But Batman has disguised himself with a wig where he's got brown hair. And so there's a little bit of continuity problem there where it's hard basically there's there's just discontinuity jackson really has blonde hair or at least that's the coloring error on uh, page three or page 245 he's got blonde hair but batman's wearing a wig of brown hair so that's where the confusion came from so that's really the probably the easiest way to say it so anyway batman promptly loses his shit and crashes out of Thomas Jackson's office and then storms off into the night and tries to track down the um, the broadcast station from which uh, Joker's been sending out his pirate TV signal where he sees what looks to be the ghost of Hugo Strange. Now, this is kind of interesting in that up to this point in the story, you could view Hugo like the ghost of Hugo Strange and that whole subplot as a hallucination that Thorne is having. You know, this isn't really the ghost of Hugo Strange. Thorn is basically hallucinating that this is the ghost of Hugo Strange because of a guilty conscience. But it's not, in fact, Hugo Strange. But this is the moment where that aspect of the story gets called into question. And Batman at least thinks he sees the ghost of Hugo Strange. And indeed, the ghost of Hugo Strange is shown to the reader right here on page four or page 246 we see the ghost of hugo strange ourselves the same way that thorn always sees him and so it does kind of raise the probability that what hugo strange is seeing is in fact the ghost of hugo strange so put that in your pipe and smoke it so anyway elsewhere the joker's chilling out at his ha hacienda in a graveyard it looks like or a mausoleum, I should say. And this, again, is just another Joker trope 
where he has his own specialized hideout called a ha hacienda and he sits there he's talking to himself and it's all just very weird very deranged and the man's just insane he's carrying on a conversation with himself you know it's I don't know. This is just some amazingly insightful writing. You know, that the Joker is not having internal thought balloons. He's speaking out loud, you know? And he could have been having thought balloons and having these exact same, saying these exact same things as like an internal monologue. But he's not. He's saying it out loud. And that just fucking, that works for me. So I just love this. This is just amazing writing. Amazing art, you know? It's all very monochromatic and you know the joker is standing inside of his own spotlight and i like the fact that he even has a spotlight rigged up because on some subconscious level he wants to always be in the spotlight so of course he's going to have a spotlight in his inner sanctum it's just good writing you know so anyway moving right along uh you've got silver saint cloud and then rupert thorn driving around together and there's a lot of detail, actually, here inside of uh, Rupert's car on page 249 or page 7. Um, there's a lot of detail on inside of Rupert's car. You know, you see the, the, uh, you see the ignition of his car. You see the speedometer. You see all the different gauges. You see all the different knobs and buttons on the radio. You see the, <clears throat> the controls on his air conditioning and all of that. And... Marshall Rogers just put a shit ton of detail into this car. It's it's really just fucking astounding, you know? So, anyway, there's no deeper meaning to that. I just wanted to throw that all out there. So, anyway, uh, Silver and uh, Thorn, they, they have it out with one another. And he kicks her out of the car, and then that's pretty much it. Charter or, uh, Silver charters a, uh, a, a private plane back to Gotham City, as it turns out. And elsewhere, Rupert gets attacked by the ghost of Hugo Strange. And, you know, it, it, it's weird that the ghost of Hugo Strange uh, says, My, My spirit, spirit couldn't, couldn't rest, rest until we settled our score, score Rupert Thorne. Thorn. Now we shall both rest in peace. And, of course, you've got Rupert Thorne, he's screaming like a baby. He's just scared out of his mind. And what the fuck is going to happen to him? So it's it's just really well drawn, really well done, really well written. You know, I like it. It's well done. So elsewhere, and the little uh, narration, the caption narration says, it makes a special point of saying it's two hours later. And the reason for that, I think, is Basically, everybody involved with the story needs time to do what they're going to do. The Joker, Gordon, and Batman need time to get back to Gotham City. The Joker needs time to get back to Gotham City. Silver St. Cloud needs time to get back to Gotham City. And Rupert Thorne needs time to turn himself into the police and confess to all of his crimes. And you got to figure, those processes would either be completed or at least well underway after two hours. And so it works for me. So that, I think, is really the reason for the two-hour uh, jump in time, you know? 
So anyway, here again, we get, this is on page 10 or page 252. We get another Joker trope of not just the Joker using a disguise, but the Joker disguising himself specifically as a police officer, you know? And he's got this kind of old-timey police officer's uniform. I don't even know what you call it, but it looks kind of like a robe that buttons all the way up on one side, you know? The buttons are all to the side, and, you know, uh, the it's like you just sort of fold it over. It's sort of like a coat, but not really. And so uh, the Joker, or rather, uh, Batman looks at all of the... Uh, he inspects all of the guards as they come into the room. He picks out the Joker right away. And the he and the Joker... This is really where the fight begins. Basically, the Joker uses his police badge, which is... We can, as we discover, it's actually a fake badge. It's filled with acid. It's a weapon. He uses it to squirt acid at Batman. Batman dodges and then tries to punch the Joker. The Joker dodges, but Batman ends up punching through what looks like... I have to assume this is a drywall, but he punches the shit out of the wall and his hand goes like right through the wall. And, you know, you know that didn't tickle. So the Joker makes a run for it. He darts across the room, opens up the window, and he's talking shit the entire time. He says, what's the matter? Bat got your tongue? You're always a party poop. Just when I'm beginning to have fun. And at this point, the melee spills out onto the fire escape. And there's some, some really well-written um, narration captioning going on here. It says, onto the rain-slick fire escape scrambles the Joker, narrowly avoiding the, the Batman's clutching arms. And the Joker shouts, catch me if you can. Wah, 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 wah. The narration continues. And even as the dark night takes the dare, we see a cab roll up and Silver St. Cloud gets out of it and looks up at Batman duking it out with the Joker and thinks to herself, oh my God. And so the Joker, meanwhile, continues talking shit to Batman as they're scrambling up the fire escape. The Joker says, nice weather for fish, don't you think? I'm so in tune with the times. Joker goes on to say, next week, I'm licensing this band, th this face to rock bands. And Batman says, laugh now, cry later, Joker. And the Joker kicks Batman right in the face and says, I'll laugh until you hit rock bottom. How's that? And the Joker watches Batman beat the shit out of the Joker and the Joker beat the shit out of Batman. And she shouts out, Batman, hang on. And she thinks to herself, the cabbie knew where to find him. The Joker announced it to the world, but I never expected this. And so, meanwhile, Batman is dangling off of the fire escape, and the Joker is stepping on his fingers and saying, one potato, two potato, uh, three potato, four, and all mashed. And uh, at street level, uh, there's a huge gr uh, group of people, this huge crowd of onlookers are witnessing the uh, the Joker and Batman duke it out with each other and Silver thinks to herself have I come back to Gotham just to see Bruce die at that moment Batman swings uh, swings up smashes his feet against the bottom of the fire escape and knocks the, the Joker off balance and shouts uh, to the Joker don't count your potatoes before they're hatched madman the narration captioning says, The fire escape shudders under the impact of the Batman's blow. The Joker staggers towards the edge of eternity. And then, his phenomenal cat-like grace, 
or rather with phenomenal cat-like grace, he holds on. And then he says to, he says out loud, you can't beat the Joker, fool. The Joker is Trump. In the old days, court jesters were held in high esteem. Even the kings envied their freedom to do whatever came into their heads. Everything goes to pot. And Batman is thinking to himself, he's looking for more secure footing. In some ways, he's as sane as anybody. Except me, for going after him. The narration caption, uh, captioning says, The storm brooded for days before breaking, but now there's no holding it back. Great sheets of water pound down like crashing ocean waves, smearing the sight of Silver St. Cloud as, as she fights to peer upward into the storm's full fury. Smearing her sight, but never completely obliterating what she sees. And she sees Batman chasing the Joker across the roof of the building. And then the Joker leaps out and lands on a, on a construction girder that's just dangling up in the air and really doing nothing. Batman swings out after him and says, Joker, you lunatic, there's no place you can go from here. And the Joker says, I can go over your dead body, Batman. Lovely weather for fish, isn't it? Or did I say that? I want you to hear all my best lines before you dive into the damp sponge. And Batman thinks to himself, his badge, the acid, as the acid squirts out of the Joker's badge. So, a sudden desperate lunge, reads the narration caption, as Batman basically dives off of the girder and lands on a, a construction site of a bunch of other girders. And at that exact moment, the lightning flashes, and it's it's kind of hard to, to describe what exactly happens. You know, does the lightning strike the girder, electrocute the Joker, and then send him falling into the water below? Or does the Joker just slip off of the edge of the girder and then fall into the water below? Or did his acid melt the suspension uh, cable that was holding up the girder, and then they all fall into the, uh, into the water below? It's tough to say, but Batman watches the Joker fall into the water below, that we know for sure, and he says to himself, or thinks to himself, no sign of anyone crawling out of the river uh, anywhere along here. Can he really be gone at long last? I've thought that before and been wrong. And then, you know, he and Silver have their sort of, their moment together, and then the, then Gordon comes along and says, hey, everything's in the clear now. You know, we've arrested Thorn, and the story ends with, in, uh, with narration captioning saying, in the dawning of a new day, he is gone. And it's Batman swinging through downtown Gotham City. The end. And... I just, I gotta say, this is... Guys, this is everything that I want from a Joker story. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is the definitive Joker story. I mean, yeah, there are some other good Joker stories out there. And, you know, they're fun. Or whatever. But there's something about, specifically, this story that, to me, it's everything that a Joker story needs to be. You know? All of the tropes all of the, I don't want to say cliches, but basically those common elements that are present in all of the good Joker stories, they're all done, they're all included here, but they're all done to perfection, you know? 
and I just, I just fucking dig this story. So going kind of long in this episode, but you know, I, it just, it needs to be said, guys, this is phenomenal writing, phenomenal art. This is just a great fucking story. I've enjoyed this story for almost shit. I, now that I think about it, it it's, we're coming up on 30 years. I've been a fan of The Laughing Fish as a story for 30 years. This is an amazing fucking story. And just in terms of preference, what I recommend is reading it in the, the greatest Joker stories ever told because I like this coloring, this new coloring done by Petra Scratis. This is the way that the story needs to look, in my opinion, but overall, no matter where you read it, whether it's the original comics or Strange Apparitions or, or just wherever else, this is what the story needs to be, in my opinion. So, anyway, my point is that the story can be found very easily, very cheaply. So go out there, if you've never read it, go out there, find the story, read it. Guys, highly recommended. You're gonna fucking love it. And in fact, just read this, uh, this, this whole run of uh, Steve, Steve Englehart and, and Marshall Rogers on Detective Comics. This entire run is an amazing Batman story when you put it all together. You know, tons of fun. Really enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy it too. So that I think is pretty much it for me this week. So bye everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, 
keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.